Hi there, and welcome to the first episode of the newly revamped Heredity podcast. Coming up, we discuss the surprisingly conserved molecular basis of spider silk, and what this could mean for synthetic silk production. And we explore the effect of human-made river barriers on the genetic diversity of low-mobility fish populations. But first, some introductions. I'm James Bergen, and every month I'm going to guide you through some of the exciting new research published in the journal Heredity. In this podcast, we hope to cover a diverse range of topics in the field of genetics, in a way that will intellectually stimulate and entertain everyone, from senior researchers to those of you who just have a passion for science. However, given that this is the first in a new series, I guess we need to cover something pretty basic, but also pretty important. What is heredity? And what kind of material is covered by this world-renowned academic journal? Well, fortunately, I happen to know a pretty good person to ask these questions to. I'm Barbara Mabel. I am the editor-in-chief of Heredity. I took over in 2016 along with the editorial assistant, Sandra. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. One thing that's different about the way we do things is that even though we're associated with a big publisher, Springer Nature, we have a small team of editors and we have a much more personalized relationship with our authors than a lot of big journals. We're also a very old journal. We've been around for over 70 years, but that doesn't mean we're outdated. We try to stay on top. Currently, we publish a lot in genomic approaches, particularly improvements in crop and animal breeding strategies, but also in a wide range of other topics associated with population and evolutionary genetics. You get the idea. If you like applied or theoretical research using the newest and most advanced technological and analytical tools to explore the myriad of biological questions and hypotheses that genetics can help us understand, well... You've come to the right place, my friend. However, if you hear the word genetics and think that you're getting yourself involved in some pretty niche subject matter, don't worry about it. The editors at Heredity keep a wide audience in mind when selecting papers to accept for publication. So because we're a general journal, what we're looking for are papers that have a broad general message rather than detailed results on one specific study system that's hard to extrapolate. And so we're more flexible in content than some journals, And here on the podcast, we're going to make things even more general and keep them even more broadly understandable. So you see, you don't need to be an expert to join us. You just have to enjoy the company of some great new ideas and concepts. You also don't have to be a member of the Genetic Society to listen, but you might want to think about becoming one, because it comes with some pretty big advantages, especially if you're a student. As a Genetic Society member, you get access to Heredity. A lot of people don't realize that they sponsor travel to meetings for students. They sponsor fieldwork grants through Heredity, which are small grants, particularly dedicated to fieldwork associated with genetics-related projects. There's also a lot of training opportunities for students and other initiatives. The Genetic Society is really worth joining, so it's really worth checking out their website to seeing the advantages. And that website would be www.genetics.org.uk. And having taken full advantage of many offerings from the Society over the course of my recent PhD studies, I can fully agree that you should check them out. And finally, Barbara just wanted to make sure that any potential authors out there know that, despite a focus on primary research papers, Heredity is home to a diverse range of academic manuscripts. People don't often think about Heredity for reviews, but we would like to publish reviews. We've added a new reviews editor who's just started, and if you've got some ideas, please contact Frank and discuss your ideas with him. That would be Frank Haler. You can find out how to contact him on the Heredity website. If you're interested in finding out more about the editorial process here at Heredity, there'll be a little bit more on this at the end of the episode. But that's Heredity the Journal. This is Heredity the Podcast. Why are we here? Professor Mabel drove the initial stages of getting this podcast back up on its feet, and for a reason that I can very much agree with. In this time when there's so much overload of information, 
it's a really nice way of being able to digest the most important information from a paper even if you don't have time to read it and we can highlight some of the exciting research that's coming out that we're publishing in Heredity. But of course, we can't look at all of the articles published in Heredity. So instead, we're going to feature interviews with the people behind the research of two papers in each month's edition of the journal. And hopefully, we'll also be able to fit in some important news from both Heredity and the Genetic Society as we go along. So I guess it's about time we talk some science. As always, the quality of research articles in June's edition of Heredity is outstanding. But the first paper we're featuring in today's episode is on an animal that, well, to be honest, not everybody loves. Spiders. More specifically, this paper, titled Conservation of a pH-sensitive structure in the C-terminal region of spider silk extends across the entire silk gene family, looks at the molecular basis of spider silk production. This research was carried out at the University of Nottingham Spider Lab, under the supervision of senior researcher Dr. Sarah Goodacre. And it's the first paper to come out of lead author Michelle Strickland's PhD research. I recently caught up with both Sarah and Michelle to discuss this work, and it turns out that spider silk is a lot more diverse than many people give it credit for, as Sarah and then Michelle were happy to explain. My name is Michelle Strickland, I'm a PhD student at the University of Nottingham, and I'm Sarah Goodacre, and I run the Spider Lab. You often get really diverse types of silk within the same body, the same species of spider. If you take the ancestral types of spiders, the mygalomorphs that we think of as tarantulas, they tend to produce one or two very basic, undifferentiated kinds of silk. We think of orb weavers and related species as the most diverse kind of spiders. And these are the ones that produce multiple kinds of silk with very different properties. So when we think of spider silk, we think of it as a very strong material. Within the orb web, those are the radial threads that are anchoring the web to the environment. The capture spiral within the web itself is a very elastic, very stretchy thread. It's not particularly strong at all. And then that's coated with a glue type of silk. So the bottom line is hugely diverse and still very unexplored. But you are essentially trying to show in your work that it might not be all that different in some of its chemical properties. So you were looking at something called the C-terminal region. This may not be something that people have really come across. So what is it and why is it really important in the production of spider silk? Silk tends to have three defined regions. There is the N-terminal being one end of a protein and the C-terminal being the other end of the protein. And then in the middle, you have a very long repetitive region and the and the C-terminal domains are both conserved, whereas the repetitive region is the bit that is the most diverse. So it's this repetitive region that determines the properties the silk has, whether it's particularly strong, whether it's elastic, whether it acts as a glue. With the C-terminal and the N-terminal regions, these are more important in how the silk fibre forms. So is the silk essentially a bit like a protein soup? And without the C-terminus region, it can't really form fibres like a cobweb? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so some studies going back to 2007 started trying to make what we call synthetic silk. They'd isolated part of a silk gene and they found that if you remove the C-termini, you basically end up with a mush. There's no real structure forming there. If you include the C-terminal region, then that's where you start to see spontaneous fibre formation within the liquid that you've collected. What's quite interesting is that the N-terminal region actually acts as a kind of breaking mechanism. And I think that really shows one of the amazing things about silk is that it always wants to form a solid or form a fibre. It always wants to polymerise. And so a lot of the time you're trying to stop it from doing that. And obviously natural selection in the spider itself will make sure that never happens. So you're constantly keeping the processes such that it's always in soluble form until it's extruded. And at that point it becomes a solid and it's very difficult to get it to dissolve. 
Talking about it going from soluble to non-soluble kind of leads into what I think might be the coolest part of your paper. You zoomed in on one pretty special species, and I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong. Is it Argyronetta aquatica? That's pretty close. We call it Argyronetta aquatica. I'm happy to go with whatever you guys are comfortable with. I had never heard of the species before, and it has a pretty unique aquatic lifestyle, and it sounds really cool. So what exactly did you learn by focusing in on it about how spider silk is formed? This is the only spider that chosen a truly aquatic lifestyle. So it does spend all of its time underwater, very rarely surfaces for anything. The really nice thing about it is it can spin silk underwater, and as far as we know, it's the only species of spider that can do that. And we know that through the silk production process, the silk dope has to be dehydrated and water has to be removed before a fibre can form. And so the question was really, if you're extruding that fibre into water, do you have the same production process or are you producing silk in a different way to other spiders? It's such a conspicuous spider and it's again, it's one of those things where the story I have about when I first started thinking about it was uh, standing in a coffee queue in Torino at a conference and I started talking to the person next to me in the queue and they, they had an Agaranetta in their pocket, particularly it was the silk glands of the spider that it had in their pocket and I just remember thinking this would be a wonderful species to look at because if you look at the spider it's a normal air breathing spider there might be other sort of adaptations it has that we don't really know about but the bottom line is it's an air breathing spider and it has relatives and they all crawl about on the land like most spiders do and this one doesn't and so it's a it's a puzzle it's a mystery and it's fantastic to see the first data now on what tools it has at its disposal to enable it to have made that transition no, it's it looks like a fantastic species. I spent a while watching videos of it, like running around underwater with its little air sac. Okay, well, there's obviously a lot of really important stuff in this paper, but what do you kind of view as sort of your main take home and where are you planning on going with this research afterwards? I think what's kind of important is we're showing that this sea terminal region, it's conserved throughout the spider world. So it doesn't matter what kind of silk you're making or what the properties of that silk are. You can use the same sea terminal region to make silk synthetically. You can start to build up a kind of toolbox. You can say, oh, well, I want a bit of elasticity, I want a bit more strength, and then you can just bolt the sea terminal on the end. What would we use synthetic silk for? Oh, blimey. Um, I think there's a huge potential range for it. I mean, as a textile, producing even just basic clothing in a sustainable manner using materials that are biodegradable, but we work very closely with colleagues who have taken synthetic silk and modified it in such a way that you can stick things to it. So things like antibiotics and fluorescent markers. And they are hoping to be able to use silk ultimately in a medical sense. There is research showing that stem cells will quite happily grow along silk. So things like nerve conduits. I think also there's lots of people who are interested in mimicking things that the, the natural world has. So I think one of the things I'd be interested over the coming months and years is to see how imaginative can we be and how imaginative can those people who are trying to, to make products be and that some of the barriers will be broken down a bit by studies such as Michelle's which give you an idea of how it is made in the natural world. That was Dr Sarah Goodacre and PhD student Michelle Strickland. Two of the authors in the recent research paper, Conservation of a pH-sensitive structure in the C-terminal region of spider silk extends across the entire silk gene family. They hope they've inspired you to look at spiders in a different way. After all, the Spider Lab aims to increase the profile of spiders in a diverse range of research areas. Personally, I also hope they've inspired you to carry around parts of your study system when you go to conferences. Does anybody else do this? Tweet us at Heredity Journal if so. 
We'd love to know what kind of biological samples you pulled out your pocket as a conversation starter in a slow-moving coffee queue. Moving on. The second paper featured in today's podcast is titled Artificial Buyers Prevent Genetic Recovery of Small, Isolated Populations of Low-Mobility Freshwater Fish. This work was carried out by a diverse group of researchers from both French and Australian institutions. And despite the nine-hour time difference, senior researcher Professor Paul Sonnex from Monash University in Victoria, Australia took the time to discuss this fascinating paper with me, and its implications for the management and conservation of freshwater fish species, which, to be honest, are at much greater risk than I had really appreciated. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And freshwater fish are of more conservation concern than marine fish and of terrestrial organisms in the main. One uh, scary factoid we point to in the paper is that 60% of the world's largest rivers are classified as very highly fragmented. It is a worrying number. But what you were focusing on specifically in this paper, which was really interesting, is the effect of these man-made barriers and what effect this was having on the genetic makeup of fish populations. Similar studies have been done on quite migratory species, like salmon obviously come to mind. But you chose to look at a species that doesn't really move around much, the southern river blackfish. What was it that motivated you to use this species in particular? So we wanted a model species to be in contrast with those more migratory species. So the river blackfish is a pretty funny little thing. It's not migratory and it's got really quite a low mobility. So the importance of this was really to try and get a sense for the generality of any effects that we might be able to measure. Reese Coleman and Melbourne Water had been thinking about this for a while. So they did some um, sampling of river blackfish above and below a set of barriers. So the, the fish is a really good example of a low mobility species. And it was amenable to sampling because it's of concern in that it's becoming less common, but it's not of conservation status with a name at the moment. So you, you mentioned the man-made barriers. What kind of timescale are we thinking about for these populations having been isolated from one another? So the barriers themselves are between 45 and 120 years old. We think that the generation time of the Southern River blackfish is approximately five years. So we think that this is a sort of maximum of 24, 25 generations of separation for these populations and about as few as nine generations. A reasonably short time in sort of evolutionary terms and sort of modest time in, in human terms. Definitely. And what kind of effect were you finding that these buyers were having on the genetic diversity of these low mobility fish populations? Our hypothesis was that if you put in a barrier that pretty much cuts off any connectivity above and below it, if you've cut off a small section in the, the upstream side of the barrier, you'll make a small population which should increase the opportunity for genetic drift, which should cause random loss of genetic variation, at least to neutral genetic markers, and should tend to cause some differentiation between um, samples that you might collect above the barrier and below the barrier. So that was the expectation, given that in this system we thought that there was essentially no gene flow. What we actually observed was very little difference above or below the barriers, with one really strong exception which was that one of the rivers had very, very substantial loss of genetic variation above the barrier and uh, had become quite genetically differentiated from its cousins below the barrier. Okay, so how, how big an impact this bio has kind of depends very heavily on the population that's isolated then. So if the population's big enough, will this keep it genetically healthy and prevent a loss of genetic diversity? 
Absolutely. Why this paper makes a, a good contribution is that we've got our real fish and we've got our genetic data and we've got our interesting observed empirical result. But to really make sense of that, we need to understand what we might have seen. And, and so that's where the simulations come in. And so this is work of Bertrand Gouff and uh, Raphael Lebois. Both of these guys are really good at the computing and the mathematics of really understanding how population genetic structure may arise under different assumptions and under different models and then running simulations to generate a picture of what the world could have looked like under various different assumptions and then you can compare your real results to those simulated scenarios. That's actually what I think is a real strength of this paper and it's quite nice to see uh, both elements in there. But I'm, I'm curious about another comparison as well. So you kind of mentioned early on in the manuscript that a lot of work's been done on very mobile species but not on low mobile species and I wonder how the results that you found compare, like how different are the results in your study compared to what's been known previously? Essentially, what the simulation showed was that if you've got a low mobility organism, that natural structure is going to make it more difficult to detect a barrier effect. It's perhaps not obvious why that might be, but the way I think about it is that uh, a low mobility organism is has spatial genetic structure anyway. Individuals that live close together are genetically similar, and ones that live further apart are more genetically dissimilar. So if you impose something like a barrier, you expect the barrier to an extent to mimic the natural genetic structure of the organism. And so low mobility organisms are more challenging to detect barrier effects in than higher mobility ones. So I guess this must have some pretty big conservation and management implications as well. It does indeed. Uh, I mean, one practical thing is that the intensity of the research that you have to do is probably going to be higher for a low mobility species than a high mobility species. So you'll need to sample at an appropriate spatial scale. You might need to take more samples. You might need to have a more powerful genetic assay. That was actually another element that we introduced into the simulations. If we had used uh, more than twice as many genetic markers than we actually had in the study, we would have had noticeably more power to detect barrier effects. I also kind of thought it was quite interesting in your paper that the outcome kind of seems as though these man-made barriers are probably having less of a noticeable genetic effect on low mobility species, but it's probably going to take more time and effort to actually figure out if that's the case. Uh, yes, and the thing that we really need to figure out actually is to what extent they're actually more immune to loss of genetic variation as opposed to it's just harder to detect that they're losing genetic variation. Actually, that's where we're going next with this, that Bertrand's leading. That was Professor Paul Sonix, senior researcher on the paper Artificial Barriers Prevent Genetic Recovery of Small Isolated Populations of Low-Mobility Freshwater Fish. It's a great paper, and to be honest, we didn't have nearly enough time to talk about it. So if you have the time, you should definitely go and check out the full research article. And now, time for something completely different. Well, almost. In coming months, we'll be using this section to explore some of the big news and events occurring at Heredity and the Genetic Society. Basically, this will be a wildcard segment, where I will delve into the things that titillate my intellectual fancy, and I at least hope will delight and entertain yours. But for this introductory episode, I did sort of promise you a little bit more information on the editorial process here at Heredity. Unfortunately, both Sarah Goodacre and Paul Sonnex also happen to be editors at the journal. I was keen to know why they're both so fond of Heredity, and what it is they actually do as editors. 
So Heredity is a journal that I'm really fond of. It's somewhere where I published one of my first papers uh, when I was working in the field of human genetics uh, a number of years ago. And since that time, I've not only read the journal, but then was really pleased to be invited to be an editor. And as an editor, what I do is typically receive manuscripts that are in my general area of expertise. I look at uh, reviewers' comments on those papers and we make decisions about uh, whether the journal fits or whether the article fits um, and how we uh, think that we should move forward in terms of getting things re-reviewed and so on. It's a hugely fun job. It's something that it's a real privilege to do. And it means that you see some of the really exciting cutting-edge science that's taking place. Well, I have put my money where my mouth is in terms of heredity. So I've published eight papers in it now. I like it because it's got a really nice balance between a strong sort of theoretical basis and also a strong empirical basis. So it has a a good eye to whether the system and the question are interesting. So I've found it very enjoyable to publish in. I've seen the handling process from both sides. My role in the journal as an associate editor is to look at the paper, assess it, double check it for fit to the journal, um, make sure that we think that it's of sufficient quality to be worth reviewers spending their time on. I do like to read every paper in, in detail, sort of essentially treat it as if I was doing a full review myself. And so, yeah, when the reviews come in, the associate editor looks over the reviews, and then that's fed back to the, uh, the authors. It's clear that both Sarah and Paul are passionate about heredity, and their emphasis on checking manuscripts for research quality is also something that Editor-in-Chief Professor Barbara Mabel was keen to point out. Our emphasis at heredity is quality over quantity. So among the changes we've been trying to make since Sandra and I took over is we've been trying to decrease the turnaround times for papers, and we try our best to give decisions to authors as quickly as possible. So in the past few years, we've had different strategies we've been using to improve this. So we've reduced the time we give reviewers. We've been a bit harder on our editors to make sure that they give decisions quickly. And Sandra stays on top of things to make sure that the review process is efficient. So one of the things that makes us different than other journals is this attention by a specific editorial assistant who's not associated with a big publisher, and her only role is to work with you and with the editors to make sure the review process is as efficient as it can be. And these changes, driven by the hard work of Barbara Mabel and Sandra Huttenbergel, have not gone unnoticed or unappreciated by their editors. We actually have a um, dedicated editorial assistant, Sandra, who's really extremely efficient, very fantastic, and uh, that makes the associate editors' lives a lot easier. And um, we've we've got some pretty solid direction from Barbara Mabel as well, so it's a good team. So hopefully that quick overview of the good editorial team here has inspired you to consider the pages of Heredity for your next research article. But I'm afraid to say that's all we have time for in this episode. Thank you to Michelle Strickland, Sarah Goodacre and Paul Sonics for sharing their recently published research with us. Also, thank you to Editor-in-Chief Barbara Mabel for helping us to understand the brilliant journal that is Heredity. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from her in coming months. Both papers discussed in today's podcast are open access and can be freely accessed on the Heredity website. That's www.nature.com forward slash hdy. Here you can also learn more about Heredity and find out how to publish your research in the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society and part of the Springer Nature Publishing Group. To keep up to date with the podcast and find out about breaking Heredity news, you can follow us on Twitter at Heredity Journal. I'm also really keen to hear what you think about the podcast, what parts you like, where you might want it to go. Please do tweet us any thoughts you might have. 
You can also follow the Genetic Society on Twitter, at GenSocUK, and find it on Facebook. I'm James Bergen, and this has been the Heredity Podcast. Tune in next time.